morning. But open your Bibles, if you would, to the letter to the Hebrews. And uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 7. And let's read verses 24 and 25. Hebrews seven twenty-four and 25. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, as Brother Dick mentioned, for the last three weeks during the first service, we've been considering this letter to the Hebrews. And from the very beginning, we see that this letter is a divine letter. That in chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus Christ is the final word of God to man. And we considered how the overwhelming theme of chapter 1 of Hebrews is the deity of Jesus Christ. This is the foundation, it is the bedrock of all that this letter goes on to say. And in light of this foundation, we are exhorted at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2 to pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. Jesus Christ is fully God, but something incredible happened. He became man. He partook of flesh and blood for the sake of the children. God himself came into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, and he knows our frame. He suffered, being tempted in all things that we are tempted, yet being without sin. And we saw that because of this great condescension of Jesus Christ, that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. In fact, we the church at the beginning of chapter 3 are called holy brethren. And we are exhorted to consider Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. But in chapter 3, we went on to consider that there is a real danger for someone to profess to be a Christian and yet to fall away from the living God. God had physically delivered the Israelites from Egypt, but Paul tells the Corinthians that with most of them, God was not well pleased because the nation of Israel had hardened their hearts against God. They had seen his mighty hand, they had seen his miracles, they had seen his provision time and time again. But ultimately, the majority of them, the majority of those who were released out of Egypt, failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief, that is, because of disobedience. And we see that the two are always joined together, disobedience and unbelief. And with the example of the nation of Israel in view, the church is warned today to take care, brethren, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
that falls away from the living God. True Christianity, that is true conversion, is evidenced by the obedience of faith. It is evidenced by perseverance, by holding fast our confidence, our assurance, our confession. That is the language of the letter to the Hebrews. Well, Hebrews is just as much about the means of salvation in Jesus Christ as it is about the proof of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we can all profess to to know God. We can claim that we've experienced something of God, that we've tasted some influence even of his Holy Spirit, in fact, and yet find out in the end that we were never saved at all. That is considered in chapter 5 and chapter 6. The evidence of true conversion is life in God. When you come to the living God, you begin to live. And living things grow. And so we were exhorted last week to press on to maturity in Jesus Christ. That is, to take solid food for ourselves, to allow our senses to be trained and exercised by the things of God. We take physical food into our bodies. If we don't, we get sick. And it is the same with spiritual food. The scalpel of Scripture cuts into us at this point. It lays us bare open. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It opens us up and causes us to see ourselves as we really are. And then answer the question, are we or are we not pressing on to maturity in Jesus Christ? Are we in the same spiritual state now that we were in several years ago? Has there been any growth? If there has not been any evidence of growth and maturity, then there is something terribly wrong. And we must realize that we are in danger of finding out at the end that we've been deceived, that we were never Christians at all. It is the end that matters. And true Christians, though imperfect in this life, persevere in this life, striving to become mature, that is, to become perfect and complete and whole in Jesus Christ. As Joseph Alexander asked, how far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end? And where begins the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent, ye that from God depart, while it is called today, Repent and harden not your heart. Scripture warns us, as it were, not to stand on the line that divides heaven and hell, not to test the Lord. We are not to neglect so great a salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Well, Lord willing, I would like to consider with you... uh, some truth that we see in Hebrews 
chapter 7, and I'd like to read a larger portion to you, Hebrews 7, starting at verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Most of the book of Hebrews is spent proving the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. This is a letter addressed to professing uh, Jewish Christians, and this would have been of tremendous significance to them. And what we see in the passage that we've just read is that priesthood is at the very center of this contrast between the new and the old. <clears throat> Priesthood and covenant are linked together. Under the Mosaic law, of course, you'll remember that all the priests were of the tribe of Levi, right? In the book of Exodus, after the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, the law was given, um, a physical tabernacle was constructed, and, and God revealed himself in that tabernacle, right, in the, in the Holy of Holies above the Ark uh, of uh, the Covenant. But the people were cut off from God. They were screened off from God by the veil. Between the inner Holy of Holies and the, the Holy Place, there was a veil. And in front of that dividing veil, there was a golden altar. And then there was 
uh, a veil that separated the first chamber of the temple, the holy place, from the courtyard. There was a, a second veil then at the doorway of the tabernacle. Well, God had set apart physically the tribe of Levi with Aaron as a high priest and his sons as priests to represent the people to God. That's what priests do. They represent uh, people to God. And in this, they were consecrated, they were ordained as priests. And Exodus and Leviticus go into great detail regarding this, that Moses washes Levi and his sons with water. He, He dresses them with distinct garments, with holy garments. It must have been quite a thing to see. Aaron, it says, was dressed in fine linen. Over that, there was a covering called an ephod with gold and blue and purple and, and scarlet. And you know, Brother Charles touched on this a few weeks ago. There was this breastplate of judgment that contained precious stones, uh, diamonds and rubies and, and emerald. Um, each tribe having its own distinct uh, type of precious stone, 12 stones, each representing uh, all the tribes of Israel. And these stones were, were set uh, in gold. There were gold chains. And on the shoulders of the high priest were two stones with, with six names uh, on each shoulder. And uh, Exodus <clears throat> tells us that Aaron was to bear their names before the Lord. And he was to carry the names of Israel over his heart when he entered the holy place. And he had bells of pure gold around the hem of his, of his robe uh, with pomegranates. Uh, there was a lot of work, a lot of craftsmanship in this. He even wore what's called a, a holy crown of pure gold on top of a turban. And there was a gold plate on top of that which had inscribed in it the words holy to the Lord. God consecrated, he set Aaron and his sons apart. Moses washed them and dressed them and and anointed them with oil. And then it says in Leviticus that the priests put their hands on the head of a bull. Moses then killed the bull, poured blood on the horns of the, of the altar and poured out blood at the base of the altar and then the fat was offered up on the altar and the flesh was then burned uh, outside the camp as a, as a sin offering. Well, after that, a bull was offered. Then the priest put their hands on the head of a ram, which Moses killed. And again, the blood was sprinkled around the altar and its fat was burned on the altar. And then Moses took another ram and they laid their hands, the priests laid their hands on, on the head of that ram, and Moses killed it. And Moses put blood on the right ear of the high priests, on their, on their thumb, on their big toe. And blood was sprinkled again on the altar. Uh, he sprinkled their garments with blood and anointing oil. And then other sacrifices were given. I mean, you can you get this. If you really visualize this, I mean, there was blood everywhere, around them, all about them, on them. These men were identifying as closely as they possibly could with sacrifice 
apart from actually dying themselves. There was nothing else for them to do, nothing else they could do in entering into this picture of atonement. Well, the primary duty of these priests was to offer up sacrifices for sin. And these sacrifices were offered up all the time, right, for intentional sins and for unintentional sins. Again and again in Leviticus, you find that the response to sin, the response to physical illness, is that a sacrifice is offered up by the priest. And over and over again, it says, the priest shall make atonement. The priest shall make atonement. The priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. You see, man is never able to solve his most fundamental problem. And that is that he has sinned against a holy God. He cannot atone for himself. It must be done for him. Well, these priests were ceremonially washed. They were clothed in holy garments. They were set apart. They were consecrated to God. They were to atone, to cover the sins of the people. And yet, what do we find in the passage that we just read in verse 11? Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, from the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise, according to the order of Melchizedek? The law was given as a covenant inaugurated by the blood of sacrifices. And these sacrifices were offered up by the Levitical priests, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. And yet we find here in verse 11 that another priest has come who is not a Levite at all, but is from a completely different order altogether. It is the order of Melchizedek. The, the ultimate weakness of the Mosaic law is the priesthood. And the problem with the Levites was the same problem that all the other tribes of Israel had, and that was that they were all sinners. Aaron was a sinner. You remember the incident of the gold calf. Moses is, is on the mountain receiving the law, and the people get restless, and he helps them make a golden calf. And he says, Aaron... The future high priest says, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Aaron was a sinner. His sons were sinners. You remember Nadab and Abihu. They offered up strange fire before the Lord. They did not regard the commandments of the Lord, and so the Lord killed them. The Lord cut off their lives. The people were cut off from God because of sin. And the Levites themselves were cut off from God. Even the high priest could not just come into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies whenever he wanted to. Or he would die. That is what Leviticus 16 says. 
Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. Why? Why will he die? For the Lord says, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. It was because God was there that Aaron could not be there. Only one day a year, the the Day of Atonement, Aaron was specially permitted to enter within the veil to bring the blood of sacrifices into the presence of God to cover the sins of the people. But even then, he could not enter until he had first made a sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of his household. And even then, Leviticus says, there had to be a cloud of incense covering the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony. Otherwise, Aaron would die. See, there had to be something symbolically separating Aaron from God. Well, Aaron would sprinkle the blood from his own sin offering on the mercy seat seven times, and then he would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. These priests were sinners who served an outer tabernacle. They served copies and shadows of heavenly things. These priests needed daily to offer up sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people. But they never offered up blood that was their own. In each sacrifice, Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, in each sacrifice was the reminder of sin. That's chapter 10, verse 3. The word atonement is used in Leviticus to to cover over, to pacify, and these sacrifices covered over sins. They pacified God, but these sins, but these sacrifices never took sin away. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And ultimately, God was not pleased with that. Read on there, chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That's Jesus Christ. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. You see how significant it would have been for these Jewish Christians to consider all these things, that the law made nothing perfect? Very significant. There were gifts, there were sacrifices, there were washings, which, which had an external effect on the body, which, which externally cleansed and externally set apart. But these ordinances could never make the worshiper perfect in conscience. They could never clean the conscience. So in the Old Covenant, we see that 
the way to God is closed. The way to the real holy place, that is heaven itself, was closed. If men were made perfect through the law, there would be no change in priesthood mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 7. Priesthood and law are linked together. Look at verse 12 of chapter 7. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes a chain a plate there takes place a change of law also. Again and again in in the book of Hebrews uh, we see this significance. Uh, look at chapter 5 verse verses 8 through 10. Although he was a son, that's Jesus Christ, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Look at chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, or of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, this doctrine of Jesus Christ as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is not, is not some minor thing that we can just kind of sweep over as, as, a, as an odd passage in Scripture. It's, it's repeated over and over. It's extremely important here in this letter. In fact, it is what the author has in mind in chapter 5 when he's talking about real, solid, spiritual food. Um, after the Old Covenant was given, God made an oath. And we see that oath in Psalm 104, verse 10. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And, and that oath is quoted three separate times in this letter to the Hebrews. Well, Who is this Melchizedek? Well, earlier on in Hebrews chapter 7, and as recorded in Genesis 14, we see that Melchizedek was a king, and he was also a priest who, it's recorded, met Abraham after a war, and a couple of things happened. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and... The account goes on to say that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And this is significant. First of all, it shows that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, right? Because the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. So we see that the the fullness of promise is is somehow tied here and linked in with Melchizedek, with Melchizedek being 
superior to Abraham. The second thing is that the order of Melchizedek is superior to the Levite order. Uh, The Levites who descended from Abraham and so were, as it were, still in Abraham, symbolically pay tithes uh, via Abraham to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. The priestly order of Melchizedek is superior to, to the Levitical priesthood. And then, because we know nothing about the, the physical genealogy of Melchizedek, it's, it's as though he has no beginning and no end. He appears in the record and disappears from the record. And so, symbolically, the priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek is an eternal priesthood. Well, what does this mean here? What does this mean for us? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He has suffered in the flesh. And in that suffering, he was perfectly fitted to become the source of our salvation. He perfectly represents man to God as our great high priest. The entire Mosaic law is this arrow that is pointing to Jesus Christ, okay? Aaron himself, he's a shadow of what we have in Jesus Christ. Let's go back to chapter 7 again and read verses 14 and 15. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still, if another priest arises according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ came into the world, and he was born into the tribe of Judah, which is not a priestly line. A Levite baby is born into a priestly line. But the priesthood of Jesus Christ is not based on physical inheritance. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is based on divine appointment. It is based on... On the oath of God, an oath that was not given to other priests. Aaron became a high priest through a, a ceremony that physically uh, cleansed him, that physically set him apart, that sanctified him. But Jesus Christ became high priest by conquering death, by raising from the dead. <clears throat> Look at verse 16 of Jesus Christ, it says, who has become such, that is, who has become a priest like Melchizedek, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, right? That's what we just discussed with the consecration and ordination of the Levitical priests, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. He has been raised from the dead. And so he he is a priest forever. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It says in verse 17, God God had sworn it. He is not metaphorically eternal like Melchizedek. It's not that 
the genealogy of Jesus Christ was lost. This is laid out perfectly in Scripture. Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is, is a historical certainty. Jesus Christ has actually come into the world physically. He actually died on the cross one day, and then he actually rose from the dead. And because he lives, he is a priest forever. Well, what the author then goes on to do in chapter 7 is to compare and to contrast the new covenant and the old covenant. And he then proceeds to do that for the next several chapters. If you see in verse 18, for on the one hand, okay, and then in verse 23, you see again the former priests on the one hand. You see a comparison is, is about to be made. In Jesus Christ, the priesthood is changed forever. The Mosaic law is set aside and a better hope is brought in. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Again, how striking this must have been for, for Jews to hear. The holy command of God is weak and useless and makes nothing perfect. For the law made nothing perfect, verse 19. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. It reminds me of that verse in Galatians chapter 2. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. A weak, useless commandment is set aside. A law that made nothing perfect is set aside to give way for a better hope in Jesus Christ through which we can draw near to God. Look at verse 22. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. <clears throat> Much can be said on this. Jesus Christ, the guarantee of a better covenant. We can say that the new covenant is founded on better promises. He has brought to us a better hope. His blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. The writer here goes on to say in chapter 12, all other blood spilt had cried out for justice. But the blood of Jesus Christ cries out forgiveness of sin. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone. But the new covenant is what? Written on human hearts. <clears throat> Look at... Uh, the latter part of <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, which is a quote from Jeremiah 31. For this is the commandment that, I'm sorry, for this is the covenant 
that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Jesus Christ is our merciful and faithful and perfect high priest. The former priests we see in this passage existed in greater numbers. Why? Because they kept dying. They were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus Christ, on the other hand, continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. You see how central the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to this. If Jesus, that's why Paul says to the Corinthians that if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sin. There is no high priest who lives to intercede for you now. But here we see that Jesus Christ, based on the, the power of an indestructible life, is an eternal high priest that he continues forever. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, Psalm is quoted and it says of Jesus Christ that you are the same and your years will not come to an end. God's purpose in Jesus Christ for the church is unchangeable. His priesthood is perpetual. Again and again, it says that Jesus Christ is a priest forever. An eternal priesthood means eternal intercession. Well, we'll end with the verse that we began with in chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 25. Because he lives forever, his priesthood is forever. Because his priesthood is forever, his intercession for sinners is forever. And because his intercession is forever, his salvation is forever. Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The law appointed weak men as priests, but the word of the oath in the new covenant appoints Jesus Christ, who is a perfect, unblemished son, the sinless son of God, who doesn't need to offer up a single sacrifice for himself but who has offered up himself once for all our sins. 
He did not offer up the blood of bulls and goats. He offered his own blood. His own self was broken and spilt. Blood which does not only cover sin, but blood which cancels sin. Blood which cleanses the conscience from dead works, which cleanses our hearts from an evil conscience. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh for, out, for external ceremonial cleansing, how much more will the blood of Jesus who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you have a clean conscience before God? Men go about all sorts of rituals. All sorts of external ceremonies are performed which don't touch the conscience at all, which don't purify the heart at all. And men and women and children leave those ceremonies and cannot deny the the truth that they are still sinners, that they are still at enmity with God. There's no peace. There's no clean heart. Jesus enters the true tabernacle built by God. He enters heaven itself for us now to appear in the presence of God. He has sat down at the right hand of God. Well, what is, what is the outcome of all this? The outcome is that if you're in Jesus Christ, you have confidence to enter the holy place. See this, we read over this in Hebrews and the significance is lost unless you realize the context here. Unless you realize that the door was closed under the old covenant. Unless you realized all that had to be done in order to symbolically approach the presence of God. And how far they were from, from, from true acceptance and fellowship with God. We have confidence to enter the holy place. The way to God is open to us in Jesus Christ through the veil, that is, through his flesh. You remember the day that Jesus died, as recorded in Matthew 27. It says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Men don't tear things from top to bottom, right? That's God symbolically demonstrating the reality that had come in Jesus Christ. That that veil, the veil of Jesus Christ had been broken and that the way to God was open. We have access to God. We can draw near to God in Christ because he bears our names on his shoulders. He carries our names over his heart into the presence of God. Not dressed in precious stones or gold, but dressed in the far greater value of his own righteousness. He represents not only the church to God, he represents himself to God. He doesn't show the blood of bulls and goats to the Father. He shows his own blood to the Father. As Charles 
Wesley wrote so long ago, it is still true. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Do you know this great and wonderful intercession of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Does his sacrifice once for all plead for you every hour? Does he live to intercede for you? Or are you still trying to cover up your sins by your own works? Come out of the shadows and draw near to God for forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And him alone, the only true high priest. Amen.